All right, so we, uh, if you're new with us, we are walking through the book of Ecclesiastes. This is, this is what we do. We walk through books of the Bible. Uh, the majority of the time here at the, at, the, at the journey. This one is an interesting one. Uh, it's one that's not uh, preached a lot. Um, it, it falls into the category of wisdom literature, but it is, uh, it's philosophical. Um, it's a little dark. Um, it's it's uh, interesting, and um, it is thematic. It has, it has a repeating theme, right? That um, what is the point of life? And he tries everything. So if you don't know, this book was written by a guy named Solomon, who, as far as we know, historically was uh, one of, if not the uh, richest, uh, wisest, one of the most powerful men to ever live. And so he had all the resources at his disposal to figure out what's the point of life. And he set out to do exactly that. And he sort of uh, did a, a research project or, or, or reflected back over his life as he let his heart, as he let himself just do whatever his heart desired. Uh, asking the question, hey, what, what's good? What will bring me fulfillment? And he just asked, and he, and he pursued, and he asked, and he pursued, and he asked. And so he's taken us down some roads already and shown us like, hey, I know you think this will fulfill you. I know you think work, I, you think pleasure, you think relationships, you think money, all these things. Like, and he's saying, I, I promise you they won't. And let me, sh- let me walk you down this road and show you that I've been here, and it's an empty deal. There's no pot of gold at the end of that rainbow. It, it, it's an empty well. It will not satisfy you. And so uh, he's, he's gone through that. And last week we looked at, hey, he's, he's looking at the seasons and times and how things seem to come and go and, and, and seasons don't stay like we think we should. And, and they move in and out. And he says, God's got a purpose for all that. And he'll make it beautiful in time. But it's hard for us to acknowledge that God is in both the seasons of being born and the seasons of, of death. And, and then he uh, moves on. And clearly verse 16 here is a transition. It says, moreover, I saw that uh, under the sun, uh, in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And so you see that he's going more over, and, and, and so he's, he's transitioning here. He goes, and also this, right? So as he's running through these list of things, he's, 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 he's really going there. He's asking the questions that a lot of times we're afraid to ask. He's, and, and he's going to attempt to uh, lead us to ask those questions as well. He's going to answer some of them, Others he's going to leave unanswered with a, with a very specific purpose to point us to the only one who can. But, but he is going there. The places that only life make us go, right? So these are questions that we don't want to answer all the time, but sometimes life forces them upon us. Sometimes diagnosis, sometimes news reports, sometimes realities, sometimes deaths and sickness and relationships being broken force these questions upon us. And then we have to wrestle with them. Solomon is saying, hey, let's wrestle with those while we're sober. Let's wrestle with those while we're sober-minded. Let's wrestle with those now. Let's let the word of God speak into those so that when we enter into those dark times that do thrust us into these questions, we have some footing to stand on. So Ecclesiastes is a crazy book, but it's a really, really helpful and a really, really practical book, a really rubber-meets-the-road book when it comes to living life here on earth. Sometimes Christianity, we just talk about, okay, let's get, them, let's get them safe so they can go to heaven when they die, and then we, we don't know, okay, what does it mean to live now? Like, what do we do with this life that's left? Ecclesiastes is really, really practical to that end. So, today's going to deal with the problem of evil. Uh, life's not fair. It doesn't go the way that you think it should. We looked at that a little bit last week with the seasons and the different things coming along, but we're gonna, he's going to go even deeper today. And so he's going, hey, more than that, more than there just being seasons of coming and going, he says, when I look at this world, when I look at this, this life under the sun, that's a theme that he keeps repeating. When I, when, and when I look at all access that I have in all of this world, here's what I see. He goes, where there should be justice, 
Even there, there's wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And so he's going to begin to look at the darkness and the evil of this world, and particularly behind mankind. He's saying, we're in this world, there's places set up that are supposed to be places of justice. But even there, there comes corruption. Even there, there's, there's wickedness. Even there, there's not consistency that, that is supposed to be. The, the, the symbol of justice is, is, is the Lady Justia holding the, 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 the weights, right, to, to, to counter, to, to, to balance out what is just and what is right so that it can be proven, you know, in the courts. And he's saying even in those places where we've set society, has set up judges and set up systems, set up officials where there's supposed to be justice served, there's still wickedness and corruption. Not all the time. You, you need to know he's speaking boldly. He's speaking allegorically at many times. And he's going to use extremes to expose the realities of life. But he's not saying these in absolute statements. Okay? He's not saying that every uh, official and every person who's supposed to bring justice, every police and, and every judge and every uh, attorney, it's not saying they're all wicked. But where those systems exist, there's not purity. He's saying there's still wickedness there. Where there's supposed to be righteousness, even there was wickedness. I don't know if you've wrestled with the same sorts of questions about the issue of evil. Because uh, he's going to keep going here. He said in my heart, God, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there's a time for every matter and, and for every work. Okay, so he's saying, I, I know that God will judge. We'll, we'll come back to that. Um, and, and, and we get that too. And oftentimes that's how we sort of, um, that's how we, we answer the, the problem of, un, of injustice and of evil in our world. We go, okay, I know that God will judge it someday. And that's good and right. And that's actually the, the ultimate answer that we're, we're going to come back to. But it's not complete. There, there's more for us to wrestle through and to settle in so that we can receive what comes from the Lord in these seasons that are going to come in our life. And so he says, I said in my heart, uh, with regard to the children of man, verse 18, that, that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beast. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is all the same. As one dies, so dies another. They all have the same breath and, 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 no advantage, and, and man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth. So I say that, so I saw that there's nothing better than, than a man should just rejoice in his work for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Okay, so he's processing that piece and then he's going to go back to this issue of evil though. Verse four or uh, verse one of chapter four, he says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort the oppressed. And I thought the dead who were already dead, man, they're more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better both is the one who's not yet been born to see the evil deeds that are un done under the sun. So Solomon's going deep, isn't he? He's going dark. He's looking at the question of evil. What do we do with this? When we're trying to worship God and we're calling other people to worship God, what do we do with this issue of evil? How many of you have thought about that? How many of that, uh, that's been presented to you as a, as a, as a, as a debate, if you will, uh, uh, about or uh, a reason not to believe in Christianity? Maybe a critic coming to you and saying, okay, uh, how can you worship a God or how can you follow a God that allows evil in the world? And, and, it, and it can become sort of this philosophical corner that the people want to back us into. And frankly, it is a really, really hard 
question. It's a really, really hard tension that the Bible, frankly, doesn't fully resolve for us. What do we do with the existence of evil as we talk about the goodness of God? What do we do with that? R.C. Sproul says that this is, if Christianity has an Achilles heel, he says it's this one. This is a hard question that doesn't get fully reconciled here on earth. The question of why does evil exist? Why did God allow it? Is, is it because he's not, like, did it, did it sneak in on him? Is he not able to prevent evil? Is he not able to stop? Did he not know that that gunman was going to head into that school last week? Could he have not done something to stop it? Could he have not flagged something or, or you know, caused that guy to get in an accident on his way or caused a police officer to, to you know, may, perhaps intersect him and some way pull him over? Like, could God not have done something like that? Is he not powerful enough? You see how these questions, if, if we go there, they can be really unnerving for us. And Solomon says, hey, you need to go there. You need to go there because if you don't, your faith isn't gonna be on a firm foundation. And so as he takes us there, Man, it, it gets hard and it gets dark as, as we look at the evil that exists in this world. It gets so bad that Solomon says, listen, I'm starting to envy the people who have died because they no longer have to see the news reports. And he goes, more than that, I think better off is those who've not even yet been born and saw this mess. Right? Y'all know that it, it's, it's a perpetual cycle. We, we, we learn to survive and we, some of us really disconnect. If you're like me, I can't watch a lot of news. I can't stay super connected. It'll kind of consume me. I, I have a real strong sense of like, okay, when there's injustice, I need to do something about it. And when I can't do something about it, it, it makes me anxious. And so I can't watch a lot of news. I, I, I have to, I have to kind of like do some self-care with that, but I can't, I can't completely disconnect because Jesus won't allow that. He wants me to feel that. He wants me to enter into that. So, so that brings us back to this question. What do we do with the, with the issues of brokenness that exist in our world, the, the, the evil that exists? We talk, about, we talk about foster care a lot. We talk about the kids who ended up in vulnerable places. We talk about uh, kids that are in orphanages and, and, and how orphanages are quiet because those kids have stopped crying because no one comes to meet their need. We've talk, we don't talk often, but there's an issue of sex trafficking that exists in our world. There's, there's the obvious issues of, of murder and drug issues and addiction and <clears throat> children abuse. If you, if you can hear the stories that our social workers and that, that the people hear about kids, even here in our area, in quiet little southern Illinois, I see some teachers nodding their heads. It, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. And so we, we can't, live with our blinders on and expect to honor Jesus with our life and expect to survive life. Because as he said earlier, there's going to be seasons whenever we're not going to feel the presence of evil real powerfully in our life because we're American and we're blessed and, and we don't have a lot of needs. But even for us, there are seasons whenever we're going to feel this acutely and we didn't know, what do we do with that? Because if we don't, it could cause us to walk away from our God and to lose the one piece of sure footing that allows us to, to last through these things. So Solomon takes us there. He takes us there, and, and, it's, and it's a hard place to be, frankly. He says, listen, the world is, is jacked up. That's his big thesis for today. He goes, man, the world is, is broken. People are evil. That's his, that's his thesis. And he goes, listen, where there's supposed to be justice, even there I see wickedness. 
where there's supposed to be people who are righteous, even there, there's, there's wickedness. You see pastors and preachers being indicted and being accused and confessing of, of horrendous crimes against people and against kids. And, like, and that's hard because they're supposed to be trustworthy. They're supposed to be people of character, right? What do you do with that? It, it makes me, like, I don't do well with it. If I'm being honest with you, like, it makes my blood boil. Parents not caring for their kids. They're supposed to care for them, Right? Again, it's not all preachers. It's not all parents. Just like it's not all cops, right? But sometimes there's cops who, who put on a display of like, what in the world? And I'm sure that good cops feel the same way that I feel about the, the preachers. Like, oh, don't do that. Don't stand in that place and do that. We took an oath, right? Like, that's the majority of our cops. They're there, but there's still sometimes where there's supposed to be righteousness, there still ends up being wickedness. What do you, what do, you do with that, Solomon says? And, and he goes, okay, I, I, I said in my heart, like Solomon's got this inner dialogue going on. He's going, I, I said in my heart, God's going God's to judge them. He'll judge the righteous and the wicked. Right, for there's a time for every matter and every word. God's got a purpose for this. This is Solomon saying what we say often, the Romans 8 theology Right, Philippians 4, like God has a purpose. This is Genesis 50, for what you meant for evil, God is used for good, right? Like this is this theology. He's acknowledging, I know God will judge. I know God will, will, will redeem this somehow, but what is going on? And he reflects further. He goes, okay, what's God doing right now though? I know judgment's coming, but what's he doing right now? I, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beast. What's he, what's he saying here? He says, I, I, God is, is letting people run the natural course of their desires. He's letting it play out for one specific purpose, that we would see that we need him. Okay, but before we get to that, he goes even darker. He goes, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so does the other. So he's saying, listen, we have all this compulsion to do something of meaning in life, to establish something that matters, to treat people good, to earn money or whatever, but even to the most proud person, right? The most, you know, just entitled, proud, like, here's the deal. Like, I don't know Jeff Bezos, like, but the dude's got a lot of money, he's got a lot of power. What this text to him says, I know, I know you're building your own rocket, bro, and that's cool, but I don't know if you know this, when you die, you're going to the same place is my kid's hamster in the dirt. Like, that's, what, that's the reality. So it's this humbling reality that even the greatest among us in our, in our world, power and, and influence, whatever gets them there, they're still headed to the dirt. And then I, I think there's another level of reflection here, because as you watch the, you know, the, the world of animals, the world of beasts, it's a little evil, isn't it? We were watching um, I don't, like one of those nature shows with the cool British guy narrating it all. Um, and they're like spending time, we're looking at a lion, um, a pride of lions, and, there's the, and they have some little cubs. And there's like three or four little lion cubs. And I mean, these things are cute, right? They're little kittens, they're just cute. 
They're going to grow up to eat your face off, but they're cute, right? And, and they draw you in. Their kids are nursing, and they're playing, right? Lion cubs are playing. They're bad. And they just draw you in, like five minutes of narrative about how the mama takes care of them and all this stuff, right? And, and you're like, oh, they're so cute. And then, and then they go, okay, and one little curious guy starts wandering off. And so he wanders off, and they zoom in on him, and he wanders off. And next thing you know, they're like, oh, yeah, and, the, and the, the, the tiger over here doesn't care how cute he is because that's now his dinner, right? The next scene is like, oh, mama's looking for the cub that wandered off, and he's in the, the, the tiger's mouth, in the tree, just snacking on that little dude. He didn't care. He didn't care he's little and cute. He doesn't care mama's looking for him. He doesn't care brother and sister don't have a friend anymore. Like, it's, it's hard, cutthroat life. It's, it's evil. It, and, and, and my little girl, man, my seven-year-old girl, like she's like our local PETA representative. Like she loves her some animals. Like she can't stand, like she'll run in front of us if we're heading to the house and there's a slug on the sidewalk and she'll like block off, you know, traffic so that we don't step on the slug. Um, and her brothers do not respect that. One of them cut up uh, tadpoles the other day with tin snips. And I was like, oh God, <laughs> like just her little mind was blown, her little heart was broken, but <laughs> the big old thick tadpoles that are like growing legs, he was like, I was going to help, anyway, um, and so she was distraught at this evil of this, like, this disconnected predator snacking on a baby cub, and Solomon goes, we're not that different. When you start to have to bring explanation into why can, why can some mom and dads allow their kids to suffer the way that they do, or why could some mom and dads farm out their kids for sex trafficking the way that they do, when you, when you start to I have to answer the question of why can somebody who is supposed to be a trusted adult take advantage of a kid that way? Like, there's, there's really, in fact, more than not being a difference, it's even worse when you, when you look at how can humanity treat humanity that way? Solomon goes, it's, it's gross, it's, it's sick. Pieces of our history, like the Holocaust. How do, you, how do you reconcile that level of evil? Millions of Jews being starved and then burned. Like Solomon goes, man, What's God doing here? What's he doing? Like, why doesn't God do something? And his, his conclusion is, man, I think God is testing them, people, humans, so they may see that they themselves are just like the beast. That without God, they end up living life just like them, and they end up being put back in the ground just like the beast. So he's saying when it comes to mortality, like we're no better. And he's going, listen, I know that, I know that we think. And so he's going to look at things from a humanistic standpoint, like life under the sun. If you want to make sense of life without God, here's what he's going to say. He's like, I know you think we're going to live beyond death, but you can't prove it. You die, where do they put you? In the dirt. Your dog dies, where do they put them? In the dirt. Right? And, and, who could prove that the dog spirit goes downward and the man's spirit goes upwards? That's what he's saying. Like, you can't, you can't prove that. Like, nobody's been here to tell us, oh, yeah, that happened in, in you know, life after death. He goes, no, it, there's no proof there. There's no way for us to say, oh, we're superior, superior to the beast. We're just like the beast. 
And Solomon wants us to go there. He wants to keep pushing us to this edge. He doesn't want us to be comfortable kind of dismissing these parts of humanity. He wants us to deal with the darkness that is before us. He wants us to deal with our mortality. He wants us to deal with our hopelessness. So he keeps pushing. He keeps pushing. He goes, if that's true, if that's all there is, then there's nothing better to do than just enjoy your work. Do what you can. He kind of defaults back to work. It's like, I, I can't make sense out of this world. So like, just do what I can. I, I'll go to my job. I'll do my work. Like, and that's where some of us go. We just shift into that, right? Our brother Peter, after Jesus, uh, after Jesus dies on the cross, and then even though he's resurrected, we're not sure. Like Peter thought he'd given his life to this thing, and now it doesn't make sense anymore because the cross wasn't a part of Peter's plan, and so he's not sure what to do. So what we see is Peter does what? He goes back to work. He goes back to fishing. A lot of you, you don't know how to make sense out of this world. You know how to, men, you don't know how to make sense out of your emotions. You don't know how to make sense out of what your family's going through. So what do you do? You should go to work. You should go to work. You know that. You get that. You're comfortable there. Your role is really clear there. So you go to work. Solomon goes, and if, and if this is all there is, then this is what you might as well do. Then he asks a question, a poignant question, at the end of verse 22. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? We're going to come back to that. It's key to understanding all of this. But he's going to go further. He's going to go again. I saw all the oppressions that are done in the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed are flowing, and there's no one to comfort them. And on the side of the oppressor, there was what? Power. And, on the one who was, and, and then there was no one to comfort those who were being oppressed. Now listen. This is the Bible talking. Okay. So some of you are going to need to shut down Fox News for a minute and listen to the Bible. Okay, because what our world has tried to force us to do is to try to, is, is to, try to polarize, like put all these ideologies into two categories and either you love people or you love your money and, and that's it, right? And that's the narrative. Well, stop that nonsense. Stop, because here's the deal. People get all triggered anytime a pastor or somebody talks about, you know, people being oppressed, oppressed and oppressor. And, and listen, there's, there's some justification for that. There's some wacky people who have gone into weird places with, with uh, critical race theory and Marxism, and, and they want to just look at people as either the oppressed group and the, oppre and the oppressor group, right? Either the, the powerful and the powerless. And, and here's the deal. There's, there's danger in that because when that's all you have, the only solution is to take the powerless and put them in power. But that doesn't solve anything because now you just have a different powerful group with a different group of oppressors. And so it gets jacked up. It's a bad worldview. It's bad policy. It will, it will bring harm to people. That's all true. However, that doesn't mean we don't talk about people being oppressed and people being oppressors. Why? Because the Bible talks about it. So here's what you need to do. Just a quick, just a quick side note on how you manage and to, to walk through this world of all of these ideologies. Like, I don't know how to, I don't know how to interpret critical race theory. I don't, know, I don't know what Marxism means. I don't know. Like, it, this sounds right, so I'm just going with them. Here, here's how you manage all of that and follow Jesus. You need to have your nose here more than you have your TV on, whatever program it is, right? You need, to, you need to listen to this more than you listen to CNN or Fox News. And I'm not putting either one of those as the villain and the hero. I'm saying, period, we as Christians need to have our nose here and let this inform our worldview, let this inform our social um, you know, stances, and then we interpret the issues of the world through this lens. But if you're starting with your 
your political party or you're starting with your worldview shaped by politics and other things, and then you read your Bible, you're going to be trying to find things that will justify what you want it, want it to say. And guess what? You can do that for either side. Okay? If that's where you're starting, from the far left, you're going to be able to find things that say, man, people matter. We need to be worried about people. We need to be caring for the poor. We need to be caring for the oppressed. We need to redistribute the wealth. Like, we can get there. But if, if you're on the other side and you're saying, listen, people need, to, people need to work. People need to hand up, not hand out. Like, all of those, like, you, if, you, if that's your, your position, you can find that in the Bible, too. So what do you do? You need to start with the Bible. And then you're probably not going to find yourself real comfortably in either party fully. Okay? Because the Bible's going to push on either side of those. We need to follow Jesus, and then we vote, and we, we, we do policy as, as the best we can while following Jesus. But if we're following a policy or a political party first, and we try to make Jesus match that, we're in dangerous territory. Okay? So we don't need to be scared of talking about injustice and oppression. Why? Because the Bible does. Okay, and so this, Solomon's acknowledging that. Man, there are people who are being mistreated. And their tears are flowing and no one cares. That's still happening in our day in different parts of the world. It has happened in our country in the past, right? Like we need to, we need to have a theology, a theology that allows us to enter into the pain and suffering of the oppressed people, right? And sometimes the only action that we have is to be the ones that are comforting them in their tears. It's just the ministry of presence. Okay, so Solomon's going, man, what like th this? When I'm looking honestly at the world, it's really hard. It's really hard, and it's really jacked up. And, he, he, and again, he says, I'm starting to envy the people who are, are already dead or who haven't yet been born. Okay, so, so this, is the, this is the place he brings us to. He wants to push us all the way to the edge of examining our depravity and evil. But now what do we do with it? Because as I said earlier, some would use this to say, okay, you've got evil in the world. How does that square with a good God? That must mean, because I can point out evil, that must mean that God himself doesn't exist. Well, that's, that's not true. That doesn't work, actually. In fact, it, them pushing on that actually proves the opposite. Because if you're going to say, well, look, there's evil in the world, so God can't be real, then you've got to ask yourself, how do you know that's evil? How, how do you know that something is evil? By what standard do you, do you measure that up? By what standard do you get to say something is evil? If there's not a God who's given an absolute moral standard, then there's nothing that you can say is good that therefore defines what is evil because evil is, is defined by, it, it's a negative, right? It's the absence of good. And so if there's nothing that is, if there's not God, then you can't say anything is good. It's just, it's just a humanistic, nihilistic society, right? In that case, it's just survival of the fittest. Dog eat dog, right? We're just like the, the, the panther, or the, lion, or the tiger, or whatever, eating the baby cub, right? It doesn't matter. It's just nature. And in that case, we don't mourn what happened at the school in Texas because it's just part of life. 
If God doesn't exist, you can't say that something is evil. See, we do have a, a, a problem to reconcile when it comes to evil with our good God, but, but a humanist, like a secularist who says that God doesn't exist has two problems. Because now, not only do they have to explain the existence of evil, they have to explain where do we get the existence of good? And Augustine says, man, that's, that's a harder problem. Like, like you, you, they have two problems on their hands, but they, they have to, <clears throat> he says this, Augustine argues that though Christians face the difficulty of explaining the presence of evil in the universe, the pagan has a problem that's twice as difficult. Before one can <clears throat> even have a problem of evil, one must first have the antecedent existence of the good. Those who complain about the problem of evil now also have the problem of defining the existence of good. Without God, there is no ultimate standard for good. And in that case, we are just all beasts. But, but, Solomon's already told us back up in verse 11 of chapter 3 that God put eternity into the heart of man. That, that Yes, we are beast and we are headed to the dirt just like the animals, but there's something different. There's something that is placed in us that makes us stand out, makes us be different. But in the image of our creator, he's put eternity. That, what does that mean? It, it means two things. It means we will live forever. It means one way or another, like we will live forever. Heaven or hell, we are, we are immortal beings. We will live forever. Okay, that's what he means by he's put eternity. Like we are made to exist forever. Our bodies, our flesh will not, but, but our souls, they, they are made immortal. So, so that means, that's one thing, but it also means that there's a longing in us, something assert, that is searching and longing, knowing that this is not all that it's meant to be, knowing that this is not how it's meant to be. God's placed eternity in the heart of man, and that's what makes us groan against the evil that we see. That's what makes us be able to distinguish between right and wrong. It's God's presence. It's God's image in us as humans. And so without God, we end up as a very distorted and jacked up and evil existence that is far different than what God intended for life on earth to be in the Garden of Eden. But that's the key, is without God. So Solomon pushes us all the way to this edge, and then he goes, who, who can bring, like, the best thing I could say is, hey, enjoy your work. But he goes, but who can bring us, who can bring a man to see what will be after him? That's the key. That's the turning point. That's what begins to make sense out of not only evil, but our existence at large. And, and that made me think of, obviously, like the, the Bible is, is all pointing towards Jesus. It's all leading us to, to long for, to look for, to expect Jesus. And so this is written hundreds of years before Jesus would, would step foot on earth. But when he steps foot on earth, he says something really profound in Luke chapter 4. And, and what he's actually quoting is Isaiah 61. So if you want to turn there with me, I want to end by reading that. And, I'm, and we're going to read Isaiah 61 because we're going to go a little further. Jesus just quotes the first couple of verses. I want, to, I want to go a little bit deeper. And I want you to hear that when Jesus steps on the scene, he has he is the one who could show us what will come after. He's the one who can answer this problem of evil and give us sustenance to, to last in this mess. So this is what he quotes from the scroll whenever he shows up to start his ministry. And this comes, if you know, the book of Isaiah is, is, a, is a prophet. This is God speaking to his people. And the book of Isaiah is full of God condemning injustice, crying out, for the existence of injustice, and at the same time telling his people that one day he's going to do something about it. So 
prophets were speaking on behalf of God, condemning, giving them the word that puts them in their place in the moment, but also looking ahead to what God is going to do. And so this is, this is a, a beautiful passage. Isaiah 61 says this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is what Jesus quotes in Luke 4, because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. Your footnote may uh, reference you down there to say the afflicted, right? And they were not afraid to label parts of the society as those who were marginalized, poor, and afflicted, and oppressed. And he says, Jesus shows up to bring good news to those who are afflicted, to those who are marginalized, to those who are poor. And he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. We just sang about that, right? Jesus is handing out the prison keys. This is what he shows up to do, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. This is such, this is the gospel. This is the good news. So you, you don't have to have, you don't have to explain away evil by trying to get God off the hook somehow. Okay, you don't have to say, you know what? I, I mean, I, if evil exists, I mean, I know, I mean, God meant well. I mean, he'll make this okay. Like, we don't have to try to get him off the hook. We can let it lie because it's not that he doesn't care about it. And it's not that he can't do anything about it because he can't. If, if he was unable to stop what happened a couple weeks ago in that school, then, then, then he's not really God. But if he is all-powerful God, then he has a purpose. He has a season for this. He has a reason that he allowed it to happen. And he cares about it. He cares about it, and this is how we know, because he says, I see your evil, I see the suffering, I see the darkness, and this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna send Jesus, and he's coming with the spirit of the Lord upon him, and he's coming to bring good news to the poor, and to bind up the brokenhearted, and proclaim liberty to the captives, to, to set those who are in prison free. How's he gonna do this? The cross. This is the cross. The cross stands as this monument in history where God says, yes, I care about the evil in this world. And yes, I care about your suffering. I'm not ignorant to it. I'm not impotent to do something about it. And, but this is what I've chose to do about it. I've chose to send my son that he may do something greater because God's options beyond that are to destroy us all. Because we can look at the real evil, the, the, the really categorically just sickening evil in the world, but the reality is all of us are sinners. That evil comes from within the heart of a man that was supposed to be living with God. And so what's God's options to, to destroy the whole world? He did that once. You read Genesis 6. He was so sickened by the evil in the world, he wiped the whole creation out. And he started over with Noah and his family. That's a dark story. Noah and the ark. Sometimes it's in bright colors and cute storybooks. Somebody suggested we paint our hallways in the kids' wing a few years ago uh, with the theme of Noah's Ark. I was like, are you going to put the bodies floating in there? And they're like, well, that's a little dark. I was like, that's a little true. I got destroyed the world. Noah and his family are on the ark. Everybody else is drowning. We don't want to talk about that God, do we? We don't, want to, we don't want to enter into that, but that's the truth. God is absolutely sickened by our evil. He's absolutely compelled to do something about it. And he wiped out the whole world in Genesis 6. But there's this beautiful promise 
that comes after that flood. The promise of the rainbow. And I think she's taken some liberties, but it's such a beautiful picture. Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible wraps that story up by saying, hey, that rainbow, that's God's war bow. And, and he's hanging in the sky to show us that he's never again going to destroy the world that way. That next time his bow won't be aimed at mankind, but instead will be aimed into the heart of heaven. And what a beautiful way to explain the promise of God from the flood. And then Jesus steps in to fulfill that promise. This is what he came to do. The cross stands as the place where God's wrath is poured out onto not us, not the evil ones who deserve it, but instead on Jesus, who has come to break the prison doors down to bring healing, to bind up the brokenhearted. But how does he do that? Only through the cross. He can't just come with some good news. He can't just come with some good teaching. He can't just come with some handouts. He can't just give you food and he can't just give you money. He can't just, like, it won't work. It's not enough. He does those things, doesn't he? He feeds people, he heals people, but not everybody. Why? Because he knows there's a greater need. And the way that he's going to bind up the brokenhearted is through the gospel, through giving us forgiveness of sins and, and, and making not total sense oftentimes of the evil against us, but giving us a hope beyond it, knowing that judgment is real and God will deal with evil. He will deal with sin. And if we place our faith and trust in Jesus, that's where that deal gets made for us that we are also evil and deserve hell. But if we place our faith and trust in Jesus, he handles that deal, he handles that debt, he handles that cost that we had accrued right there with Jesus. It's this great exchange. But for those who don't, he'll handle it. He'll handle it. Justice will still be served. But there's this great news that, that, that's being sent for, for all who would hear on the name of Jesus and, and come and, and repent. They could be saved. And that's why he hasn't come back yet and done anything about it. Because we think anything, when's he going to bring justice? Well, listen, if he brings justice, he wipes us all out. So what does he do? He's waiting. First Peter says, listen, our God's not, he's not slow in the way that you consider being slow. His slowness, his, his waiting is meant to lead you to repentance. Solomon said, what's God doing? He's letting us see our evil and our wickedness and our mortality so that it'll lead us to the feet of Jesus. So that it'll lead us to know that we don't have the resources in and of ourselves to fix this mess. Evil will exist. Sin has distorted God's good creation. What are you going to do about it? You're powerless, but you come to Jesus. You come to Jesus. He, he, he heals you personally, and he has a promise of making everything right corporately, totally, one day. And so that's, that's how he does this work, but he goes on. Listen, it's okay, so, so that's good news. That's where Solomon was whenever he said back in Ecclesiastes that I know God's going to judge the wicked and the righteous. And that's good news. Right? That's what allows us to, to last in this world where, where sometimes the courts and the systems that are set up to bring justice, they don't do it. It's not perfect. So what do you do in that moment? What do you do whenever, like, you know, somebody dies, like a good person gets cancer and dies, and, and you have no explanation for that, or they died through COVID and they're leaving young children at home? 
What do, what, do you, what do you do with that? And yet the, the criminal who's, who's killed person after person after person lives a long life in prison. How do you reconcile that? That criminal better than that dad who, who left four kiddos at home? How, how do you reconcile that, right? The only way you can reconcile that is to say God will judge. He will. He will judge both the righteous and the wicked. It's the only way that gives us peace, that keeps us from being so wound tightly that we're exacting vengeance on our own, right? That we're coming to make, that we walk away. Listen, that's, that's part of what Jesus, all of that finds its culmination right there on the cross. He says he's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God or of our God. To, <clears throat> okay, so that's good news. He says he's come to comfort all who mourn. This is our Savior. Yes, he cares about the evil, so much so that he's come to comfort you. To grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Some of you feel like your whole life's been a life of ashes, a life of just hardship, a life of one struggle after another. The gospel says Jesus has come to exchange that mess of ashes for a beautiful headdress, and, and to give the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. This is the, the word of the Lord. This is, this is what he has come to do. This is what Jesus chooses to read about himself in Luke chapter 4. And they knew this passage so well, right? The people that are at that synagogue on that day, that small town, Jesus shows up, and they're like, hey, Jesus, you want to share a word? He's like, sure, give me Isaiah. He opens the scroll, and he goes, in the year of the Lord, like, the Spirit is upon me, and I've come to do this. Rolls it back up, hands it to him, and sets down. He's like, today this is happening. It's his boss move. Everybody's like, what? Like, no, no, that's me. I'm here to do that. I'm here to do that. This is what Jesus has come to do. Okay, so, so he cares about our evil, and the judgment is what allows us to wait without losing our minds. And what, It's not going to be easy. It's what allows us to make sense and, and to reconcile the existence of evil while we wait for judgment day. But more than that, here's, I love this, because more than that, he, he comes to heal us up, to give us a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, headdress of beauty instead of ashes, right? Oil of gladness instead of mourning. So he wants to change who we are. He wants to take a broken people, a people of mourning, a people of what in the world, like that kind of people, and, and transform them. Listen to what this is what we're made into because of the gospel. That they may be called, this is uh, the end of verse 3 in Isaiah 61, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planning of the Lord that he may be glorified. Solomon goes, listen, I don't even know where to find righteousness. Where it's supposed to be, there's still wickedness. Jesus says, I got this. Watch this. I'm going to make a new people. I'm going to take out their hearts of stone. I'm going to put in hearts of flesh. And I'm going to transform the world through my church. And the church is going to be the agent of reconciliation. My people are going to be the salt and the light that keep this thing from totally deteriorating until I come back and make all things right. There's real substance to that whole idea of being salt and light. It's not just like being a good old boy, good old girl. No, no. We enter into the brokenness of our world and we keep it from falling completely apart through the gospel. Okay, so we become oaks of righteousness in a world where there is no righteousness, there is no justice. All of a sudden, his church starts to pop up. His people start to prop up like the planting of the Lord, like, like the Lord's planting a vineyard. And then we and start coming up so that God is glorified. Not people, but God is glorified. And what are they going to do? They're going to build up ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former, uh, the former devastations and they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. 
Jesus says, I've come to enter into your brokenness, to take your mourning and turning into gladness. And when, you do, when I do that, we're going to now transform this world. You guys are going to stand as a symbol of oaks of righteousness. You're going to start taking what's broken, broken and rebuild it. Start putting it back together. Will it be perfect? Can we fix every problem? No. No. Y'all know I care a lot about foster care. And if the church would step up, if just like a, a handful of families from the Christian community, like we could, we could meet the needs of those that are already in foster care, but here's the reality. There's more coming. There's more parents getting addicted, abusing their kids, neglecting their kids. So it's not a permanent solution, which is what leads some of us to just go, I don't know what to do. Jesus goes, no, no, go ahead and get your hands dirty. Go ahead and start that work. Start building back what's been torn down by evil. I see the broken world. That's why I came. Saved you, care about you, gonna keep walking with you. Now go. Go. See, God cares a lot about justice. He cares a lot about what we do. Sometimes we just wanna separate into faith alone. And and listen, that's true. We're saved by faith alone through grace alone. It's, It's absolutely true. But when you look at the judgment passages in the Bible, there's a whole lot about what you do. Yeah, you've been saved by grace alone through faith alone, but what'd you do with it? Did you clothe anybody but yourself? Did you feed anybody but yourself? Did you put anybody back together but yourself? Read Isaiah 68 or 58 and and, and 60 and and read 66 and read Romans chapter 2. Read Matthew chapter 25. You start to see that God separates the wheat from the chaff, the goats from the sheep by what you do. That doesn't mean you earn your salvation. But because we've been saved, because we've been treated like that by our Jesus... He says, now go and do likewise. Go start loving those who are broken. Okay? You go find you a, a, a scared, pregnant woman who's considering abortion. And you learn her story. And you love her well. You go find you somebody who makes no sense to you and you can't understand why they don't just get a job, why they can't just do what you've done. Learn their story. You enter into foster care and you don't just care for the kiddos, but you say, you start to build a relationship with the parents. I've yet to meet a story that doesn't break my heart. Yeah, I can't imagine why they, why they didn't care for their kiddos the way that I care for my kiddos, but guess what? Almost without fail. They've got stories of abuse, stories of brokenness in their own heart. So you, you start to move toward them. See, you see them and you move toward them. You start to put them back. Like Jesus starts to put the world back together. Will it be perfect? No, but it's what keeps it from falling totally apart until he comes again. He sends us out to begin to put together what has been torn down. And one day he's going to come along and he's going to finish that work. This is back to the work sermon. We're going to get to rejoice with him. Right? I love this picture. I joked before, right? Those of you who grew up in the trade, you got a parent that, that works in the trades, you can't drive anywhere without them telling you everything they built, right? I built that building, I poured on that, I did on that, right? When we get to heaven, Jesus is going to finish the work of reconciliation. And we're going to get to see where we partnered. We're going to get to see what we've done. We're going to get to see him bring it to completion. That's how we live in the problem of evil in today's world. We cling closely to the cross. 
and then we seek to follow Jesus as he begins to just put one life together, one life at a time after another, and he uses us, his church, to do that. Let's pray. God, help us. Help us to rightly process this tension of justice. Help us to rightly let it fit into our our worldview and how we see you and what you've called us to do. But let us not dismiss it because we don't want to think about it. Let us not dismiss it because it makes us uncomfortable. Let us not dismiss it because it doesn't align with our current lifestyle. Instead, would you, by your spirit, help us to rightly go where Solomon is leading us to confront the the mess that this world is and then to step into the role that you've called us to be a part of. But Father, if there are those here who have not yet personally been forgiven, restored, and transformed, today would you give them the the faith to just run into your arms, to, to cry out that they need you and to see salvation. We come before you, Lord, as your people, humble, just like beast, unless you do something, unless you come and redeem us. So we look to you, Jesus. Look to your spirit. We surrender ourselves. It's in your name we pray.